The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The Lord's Table is the ritual that Lord Jesus Christ commanded for all believers to participate in during the church age. This is in terms of an ongoing ritual observance. But it is not a ritual that is without reality. And the reality determines or is determined by what is in the soul of the believer. For the Lord's table is in picture. It represents what Jesus Christ did on the cross. The Lord's table is for those who have put their faith alone in Christ alone. It is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Scripture says, when we partake of the Lord's table, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's table is a picture of the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is an extremely simple, an extremely simple ritual. It is designed to remind the believer of everything that we have because of who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. The bread, the first element in the Lord's table, represents the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his impeccability. This is a doctrine that we've studied the last a uh, couple of weeks in First John, that Jesus Christ is without sin. He was born without a sin nature because of the virgin birth. He did not inherit a sin nature through the male. The Scripture teaches that it is through the male that the sin nature is transmitted. He did not receive a sin nature. There was, therefore, no imputation of Adam's original sin, and he committed no personal sins. He lived a life that was without sin, Independence upon God, the Holy Spirit. That qualified him as a perfect man, as a second Adam, to go to the cross and there to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, for the sins of all humanity, past, present, and future. Because the sin penalty has been paid by Jesus Christ, there is therefore nothing that man can do to add to that. It is paid in full. So we simply accept his work on the cross on our behalf, and that is the uh, essence of salvation. What makes a person a Christian is not where they're born, it's not their family, it's not the church they go to. It is a personal decision made by each individual to put their faith alone in Christ alone. So the bread represents the person of Jesus Christ. He was qualified to go to the cross because of his sinlessness to die as our substitute. The cup is a picture of the sacrifice. The wine or grape juice as we have it represents the shed blood of Christ, which in turn the physical death of Christ in turn represents his spiritual death. The spiritual death is the ultimate penalty for sin. Between 12 noon and 3 p.m., Jesus Christ died on the cross. That's He died spiritually. That's when he paid the penalty for our sins. It was after that time period that John who wrote the Gospel of John, says, when it was finished, using that perfect tense of teleao again, when it was finished, when he was finished, when it was complete, he said he thirsted. And then the last thing Jesus said on the cross was, it is finished, it is over with. He had paid the penalty in full. It was complete. There's nothing that we can do to add to that. So what happens at the Lord's table is we are to focus our attention on who Jesus Christ is and what he did for each one of us. It is a reminder, it is a call to humility for every believer to recognize once again and to be reminded of the fact that it's not who we are, what we have done, but it's who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Now, a couple of things that we ought to note this morning in terms of of, of observance. First of all, as I stated, it is for anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a number of visitors here this morning, and I don't know if the visitors that are here are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord's table is not for you. But we would hope that you would take this opportunity to put your faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, 
church membership is not an issue. Some churches, you can't partake of the Lord's table unless you're a member. That's not true. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a member of the body of Christ, the Scripture teaches, and therefore it is your right and privilege to be at the Lord's table and to participate. Uh, secondly, what we do here is that we pass out the elements, and you retain the element until all have been served. So with that, I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward in just a minute. We always begin with a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that we are to make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord when we partake of the Lord's table. For that reason, the believers at the Church of Corinth were being disciplined because they were rowdy. They Back in the early days of the church, it was a full meal, and they served alcoholic wine, and they would get drunk, and they would overeat, and they would use the Lord's table as an opportunity to party instead of an opportunity to worship. And so Paul said that for that reason, because they abused the Lord's table, they were under divine discipline, and so he said, we are to all examine ourselves to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to partake of the Lord's table. So we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer so that you have that opportunity to make sure that you are right with the Lord spiritually. And then I will ask Jim Sexton if he would return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. cross he took the bread and he said this bread is my body which is given for you take and eat I'm going to ask Mike Regal if he would please stand and return thanks for the cup And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's just uh, open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, for the freedom that we have in this nation to do so. For those who are willing to uh, commit the ultimate sacrifice to defend our freedoms, those who are serving in the armed services, we pray that you would uh, give our leaders, our political leaders, wisdom to use those military assets wisely. We pray for those who are on the front lines that you would give them the courage to engage the enemy in battle, and we pray for those who, the terrorists, that you would confuse and confound them and you would prevent their designs. Father, we pray for uh, those in this congregation who are serving in the military. We pray that you would uh, particularly watch over them. Father, we pray now for us as we study your word that we might be able to understand the things that we studied today and that you would help us to put these things together with other things that we have studied in the past and that above all, we might be challenged as believers to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Open your Bibles with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, and this is indeed one of the more difficult chapters in Scripture to uh, understand and to, in some ways, to teach. One of the challenges that presents itself to a pastor teacher is that a congregation is like a one-room schoolhouse. When I look out on the congregation here, I see that some of you are spiritual uh, kindergartners. Some of you are pushing into graduate school level, and everybody else falls somewhere in between. And it's interesting as we've gotten into this uh, passage, and it's it is a difficult passage and one that is frequently misunderstood, that uh, we've also had quite a number of visitors last Sunday and this Sunday. So if you're a visitor and this seems to, to really uh, uh, be a little uh, bit of a stretch for you, that's okay. Just like when you were a kid, don't eat the tough meat, just eat the vegetables and drink the soup. And uh, some of it seems a little beyond you. Well, uh, that's because the rest of the congregation has had quite a bit of background that uh, we have to draw upon in order to understand this passage. Nevertheless, I'm going to do a lot of review because we have to put this together. And uh, it was brought home to me, the significance of this passage, in an email I received this last week. email came from one of the uh, folks, in fact, the wife, the wife of one of the men who comes to WHW, and I've gotten to know both of them over the years, has gone out to L.A. and been involved in the conference there. She sent me an email this last last week with a question, a question that is not unlike some that I've been asked by other people at other times. And in that email, she specifically went to 1 John chapter 3. And I thought, well, isn't this just timely? You know, there's no accidents in the plan of God. The question that she was asking had to do with a friend of hers, a friend of hers who's been married for some time, and now her husband has decided that he really should have been born a woman and that uh, he is leaving her. He's becoming, uh, a, I don't know what the correct term, transvestite, not just a cross-dresser. He wants to go through a sex change operation, the whole thing. And in the past, he has uh, claimed to be a Christian, and now his uh, wife is, of course, questioning his whole spiritual status. And can someone who is going to be a uh, cross-dresser or transvestite or go through a sex change operation and completely reject everything that they've been taught about, uh, taught from the Scriptures, can they really be saved? And uh, can they really have a true belief in the gospel? Of course, the first point I made in my response was that we have to be careful. The Bible never once puts a, a modifier on the noun faith. And yet you'll hear people do it all the time. They'll talk about, well, they didn't have genuine faith. They didn't have a saving faith. They didn't have a true faith in the gospel because obviously later on in life they have just messed up so badly they're uh, turned into a drunk or a drug addict or they're immoral or they left their spouse for some sweet young thing and or several sweet young things, and uh, whatever it might be, you know, we live in an age today when uh, you know everything is possible and everything is done. I mean, I can't uh, even begin to tell you some of the things that uh, I have uh, seen and witnessed in counseling situations or complaints that you hear from not members of this congregation, so you all can rest easy, but at other places and at other times, and uh, as well as personal friends of mine acquaintances over the years, you just see all kinds of things uh, take place. And in certain circles and in certain churches, some of these people would uh, certainly never be considered as being believers, simply because in some cases just the, the language that they use. I, I know some guys who are believers who have a tremendous love from the, from the, for the Lord, and yet, shall we say, they have a rather colorful, salty vocabulary. Nevertheless, they have tremendous uh, love for the Lord and doctrine and in many churches that judge Christianity and Christians on the basis of rather superficial concepts of sin. Uh, these people would not even be considered to be saved because they utter certain uh, words and they utter them quite frequently in their vocabulary. I even know one pastor like that, uh, not from the pulpit, but uh, in his personal conversation, it's rather rather salty. 
Uh, I'm not justifying or validating or telling you that you ought to speak like that. I'm just saying that, that we have to be careful not to judge people's saved status on the basis of behavior. The Scriptures never present salvation in terms of a person's behavior. They never present assurance of salvation on the basis of behavior. And yet, one passage that people go to quite frequently in order to validate that is 1 John chapter 3. This struck me also this last year. I was teaching at a conference at a church. I won't mention where it was. And it was a rather large group of people. And uh, during the question-answer session, one lady in the congregation asked me uh, the question. She said, I have a, a friend of mine who grew up uh, in a Baptist church, and she grew up with me, and she was, a, she was a Christian as far as I can tell. And yet a few years ago, she married a guy who was a, uh, a Muslim, and she converted to Islam. Is she still saved? And my answer was, if she trusted Christ as her Savior, at any point in time, no matter what she does subsequent to that, she is still saved. There's nothing that you can do to undo salvation and to reverse the process. Uh, the pastor, unfortunately, got up later on and uh, disagreed with me. His basis for doing so was a misunderstanding of 1 John, and specifically 1 John chapter 3. And I'm even even so... I'm amazed at how many people might correctly interpret other passages in 1 John. In other words, they will understand 1 John to be a book written to discuss Christian fellowship, not necessarily salvation. And yet when they come to this chapter, especially the first nine verses, they um, interpret it in a completely different manner. This is why I emphasize the fact over and over again, not just here in my teaching, but when I teach Bible study methods, when I'm teaching pastors how to study the Word, one of the key principles in interpreting Scripture is that you have to understand a passage in light of the author's overall intent and purpose in a given letter. For example, we saw in James that that James was a letter that was written to believers to teach them how to handle trials and testings in life. And as part of that, James summarizes his own message in James 1, 2021. He says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He develops the whole idea of being quick to hear in verses 120 down through the end of chapter 2, 227, I believe. In 3, 1, it deals with the sins of the tongue, slow to speak. And in chapter 4, the mental attitude sins represented in the first statement by anger, being slow to anger. But those are three specific areas that James honed in on. And his whole purpose for the book is to write to believers to teach them how to have endurance in times of testing. In other words, how to continue being obedient even when things got got difficult. Now, if you don't understand that James is writing to believers about how to have endurance in times of testing, then when you get to some of the difficult passages in James 2, you're just going to completely blow it because you're going to try to start interpreting them, as many people do, as believer versus unbeliever, and you've immediately forgotten why and to whom James is writing. Well, John does the same thing. I mean, interpreters of John do the same thing. They they sometimes, I even read one commentator who made the point that, well, John's close to 90 by the time he writes this epistle, and he's just sort of, you know, bouncing from one point to another, and there's no real uh, interconnection, no real solid theme. And whenever I hear that, I always think about uh, the fact that that's the same kind of thing you hear from so many commentators about James, and yet it's... It's a distortion, and it's wrong, and it's a misunderstanding of the epistle. If you understand 1 John the way most people do, as comparing believer versus unbeliever, then you will misunderstand 1 John chapter 3. If you understand John to be talking about the difference between growing spiritual believers versus a stunted carnal believers, then you should understand 1 John 3 in a different way, the way I will teach it, I've taught it last week and will teach it today. The problem that you see with a lot of people is that they're, they're too dependent upon their English translation or they are not conversant enough with Greek 
or they are trying to force the passage into their preconceived theological notion. As a result, they end up making this passage say some things that it's not saying. To make this very simple, to bring it right down to a basic understanding before I get in, into trying to help you understand the background, the point that people go to is they, they go straight to verse 9. And in verse 9 we read, Whoever has been born of God, and that's taken to be the believer, and that's true, does not sin, for his seed remains in him. Now, what happens is, in some translations, the way it, deals, it translates that is to say, Whoever has been born of God does not continuously sin. I think the NIV translates it that way. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot continue to sin. And they add this idea of continued sinning instead of just committing sin. And that's not what the Greek says. It is an interpretation based on a false or erroneous interpretation of the present tense of the of the verb. And so what the way that is normally taken is that if you're a true believer, if you're a genuine believer, then you're not going to continue to sin especially certain sins like cross-dressing or homosexuality or some other kind of sexual perversion. Well, let's stop a minute and just think back with the way we have understood Scripture so many times and understand the dynamics of salvation. We have to have this as a framework. So we understand what happens at salvation. At the cross, we put our faith alone in Christ alone. Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Salvation is not based on works. The problem with the view I disagree with on 1 John, is, that, and, and it is typical of what's called lordship salvation, is what they do is front load, or excuse me, back load the gospel with works. Now, most of you are familiar with people who are front loading the gospel with works. You know, they're going to come along and right up front they're going to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live a good life. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be a member of this church. I mean, this church or this denomination is the true church and every other denomination is false and, and uh, apostate. Or they will say, uh, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and, and give a certain amount. There's all kinds of, of permutations of the faith plus system of salvation, but that's introducing works right up front so that it's part and parcel of what you have to do to be saved. Not just believe, but believe and be immersed, believe and join this church, whatever it might be. What's more difficult to spot is the lordship approach because it backloads the gospel. In other words, it slips works in through the back door. They don't say up front that what you have to do is believe and do this and you'll be saved. What they will say is that while salvation is faith alone in Christ alone, if you've got true faith, genuine faith, or saving faith, then that is going to work itself out in a certain lifestyle. And you as a genuine believer will not continue to do certain sins. Notice the word continue. You will not live a lifestyle following a certain sin pattern. You will not uh, reject the Lord. You, you will never deny him after you are, once you are truly saved. This is, in other words, there are certain sins in their view that the genuine believer or the true believer will not or cannot commit after he is saved. Because what happens at salvation in their view is something that Somehow it, it dilutes your sin nature so that your sin nature is no longer as evil, as sinful, as powerful as it was before you were saved. There were certain things you could do before you were saved, but if you're really saved, no genuine child of God is going to do that because something happened to you at salvation which is going to make it impossible for you to do certain sins or to continue to do certain, certain sins. And what, um, uh, what's interesting is I read a, a an article written by a classmate of mine in the doctoral program at Dallas Seminary a number of years ago where he was uh, writing an article for a theological journal about Louis Sperry Chafer. Chafer was the founder of Dallas Seminary. About Louis Sperry Chafer's view of the Christian life, which is essentially my view of the Christian life. And he said, well, the problem with Chafer's view at this point was that he had a low view of salvation. 
Now, if you've ever read Chafer, you know that's not true. But you say Chafer's got a low view of salvation because salvation is so powerful that it that it limits the power of the sin nature, and you can't do certain things after you're saved. See, this guy's got an awfully high view of man and an awfully high uh, low view of the sin nature. And what I find is that the, the lordship crowd isn't living in the realm of reality. Where most people in the pew, where most people in the pew are living and living our lives with with folks who are not saved, and they're just out there in the uh, some sort of ideal idealistic theological sky somewhere, totally divorced uh, from reality. Not only that, but they usually have to water down or dilute the meaning of sin. And I will will look at that as we go through this this morning. So we start off realizing that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, the backdoor view of salvation is they'll say that if you're really saved, your works will show it. And, and, and the subtle thing is that they're saying is that if you don't have a certain kind of work or it's not evident, then you weren't really saved in the first place. It wasn't true faith. It wasn't saving faith. It wasn't genuine faith. And so works, be, while works aren't part of the package, works are so essential to its uh, validity that without them you weren't saved. So it's a, it's a subtle form of a work salvation. Well, at salvation we are uh, baptized into Christ by God the Holy Spirit. That is our positional reality. It is an absolute. At the instant of our salvation, God does 40 things for us. These are eternal realities that can never be changed, never be reversed. They are ours. We're made priests. We're made ambassadors. We're identified with Christ in his death, burial, and his resurrection. We are given a new nature, and that's regeneration. We're indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. We're redeemed. We're propitiated. We're reconciled, uh, and, and many, many other things. But see, all of that happens. There is this radical transformation Paul summarizes it in 2 Corinthians 5.18 by saying, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. What happens is that that you have to understand the, the radicalness of that transformation. That's why you can't lose your salvation. This is the eternal reality. This is what is our possession. The Christian life is basically learning what happened to us at salvation, what these spiritual assets are, and how to implement them so that we can live a life that is not controlled by the sin nature. Notice I didn't say so that we won't stop sinning, because even John recognizes in this epistle we never reach a time of sinless perfection. We will always sin. In fact, I think that, that as we grow as believers, we may quit some sins, but what happens is if we're in the Word, we just realize how much more sinful we really are and how arrogance seems to permeate every, every aspect of our being. So we divide this up in terms of eternal realities on the one hand and temporal realities on the other hand. By temporal realities, I mean our day-to-day experience in time. You know, one day we're walking with the Lord, the next day we're not. One moment we're obedient, the next minute we want to do things our own way. And so we have to understand this dynamic. The Scripture uses various terms to describe this. Jesus used the term abiding. He said we are to abide in Him. And obviously believers can not abide in Him. So we either abide or we abide not. When we're abiding by Him, uh, we are also walking by the Holy Spirit. And John used the phrase in John 1 that we are also walking in the light. So all of these terms are synonymous. They represent the believer's experience on a day-to-day basis when he's obedient with the Lord, when he's in fellowship with the Lord, when he's empowered by God the Holy Spirit and applying his word. We're, uh, we're walking in the light. But we can sin. And as I said last time, sin is a matter of volition. We saw this from our study of Galatians 5.16. We've seen it again and again. Uh, I've gone over this. I want you to think about this verse in your sleep sometimes. We are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, and it will be impossible to bring to completion the deeds of the sin nature. That's what that verse is saying. Uh, I've expanded the translation a little bit, but the essence is if we're walking by the Spirit, it's impossible to sin. That means we have to choose, and sometimes we're aware of it, sometimes we're not aware of it, but whenever we sin, we have already made a choice to stop being dependent upon God. We make that choice, and then instantly we are 
out of fellowship. We're not walking by the Spirit. We're in carnality. We're walking in darkness. We're walking according to the sin nature. And the only way to recover from that is to uh, apply 1 John 1, 9 and to confess our sins to God the Father. So we're either in the circle or we're out of the circle. These are absolutes. We're either walking by the Spirit or we're not walking by the Spirit. We're either walking by the Spirit or we're walking according to the sin nature. We're either walking in the light or we're walking in the darkness. We're either filled by the Spirit or we're not filled by the Spirit. I mean, the Scripture is clear, and you can go through chapter after chapter and chapter and show how it portrays these as absolutes. It's either one or the other. Okay, let's build on the concept a little bit. We've talked about the fact that we have ten spiritual skills. Sometimes I call them stress busters. Sometimes we call them problem-solving devices. But these are the keys to spiritual growth. So I'm going to put them up here in a little different format. We have confession. We have to confess our sins to get, remember in the previous Diagram: We have to confess our sins to get back in fellowship, to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and to walk by means of the Spirit again. Well, that's what I'm just drawing this circle in a different way. The confession gets us back inside the circle. Then we are to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit, and that relates to learning the Word of God and then our ongoing walk by means of the Spirit. We apply the Word. We mix our faith with promises and with doctrines, and that's called the faith rest drill. We grow by, uh, that's Second Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. God has given us these magnificent promises that uh, we can grow by them. Then we have grace orientation. We grow by understanding grace. Grace orientation involves humility towards God and teachability, learning doctrine. Second uh, Peter 3.18, we grow by means of grace and by means of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So doctrinal orientation. We, we learn doctrine and we apply it. Uh, to our thinking and to our lives. We develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny, that we have a destiny. As a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a member of his royal family, you have a destiny to rule and reign with Jesus Christ during the millennium and on into eternity. Our position, our responsibilities, our capacity for joy and happiness in the millennial kingdom and in the eternal state is dependent upon what we do now. The decisions you make today will affect who and what you are in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. As we move through uh, growth and we learn per- how to handle things with our personal sense of eternal destiny, we develop more, a greater knowledge of God, so our love for God increases as personal love for God. As a result of that, we're able to apply the principle that we're going to see again and again in 1 John 4 and 5, that we love one another impersonal love for all mankind. We focus our attention on Jesus Christ in terms of occupation with Christ, and we develop his perfect happiness. He says his joy he gave to us, uh, plus H, perfect happiness in James 1, 2. Now, that defines the circle. Those are the boundaries inside of which we are walking, we're abiding in Christ, and we are walking in the light and walking by God the Holy Spirit. The issue is volition. Now, what keeps us walking in the light and what keeps us abiding in Christ is when we're inside this circle, when we're in fellowship, when we're walking by God the Holy Spirit, all kinds of things are going to happen in life. All kinds of things are going to come up that we can make decisions about. And every decision is, in a technical sense, a problem. Now, sometimes when we hear the word problem, we think it's something negative. But a problem in a technical sense is anything that needs a solution. Remember, in Matthew, you talked about problems. Two plus two equals what? That's a problem. That's not a difficulty. It's just a, a decision that demands a solution. And so as we go through life, you have all kinds of decisions that you have to make in life that relate to, uh, or that, that relate to application of doctrine in some sense. Am I going to apply the word here? Am I not going to apply the word? Am I going to be dependent upon God or am I not going to be dependent upon God? To stay inside the circle, to maintain your position walking in the Spirit, abiding in Christ, then you have to use one of these skills to stay there. 
You have to claim a promise. You have to recognize that it's not what I do, it's what God does. I'm dependent upon God's grace. Uh, because I have an eternal destiny and I'm going to be uh, ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, then I'm not going to do certain things here and now. Uh, somebody just mistreated me. I'm not going to respond in bitterness or anger or resentment or revenge motivation, but I am going to apply impersonal love towards that person, not only in absence of mental attitude sins, but I'm going to treat them as I would want to be treated, not uh, on the basis of their bad or wrong behavior. Uh, these are the ways we handle things. Whenever we try to solve a situation on our own, apart from these skills, we're going to rely on the, whole, on the sin nature. See, when you have a problem in life and you try to handle it yourself, you're instantly choosing not to walk by the Spirit, not to apply doctrine, but to handle it yourself. And so what happens is you're outside the circle, you're walking in darkness, you are under the control of the sin nature. It's either one or the other. The ten problem-solving devices or spiritual skills are designed to handle every situation, every decision, every issue in life so that the believer stays in fellowship abides in Christ. That's what abide means, not just uh, the idea that, well, once I once I have this difficulty and I uh, solve it on my own, then I can get back in fellowship. See, a lot of Christians somehow get this idea that, that well, it's too difficult to apply the word, so every time something comes up, they get angry or they get mad or they do this or they do that, and they always yield to the temptation to sin, but then they confess their sin and get back in fellowship. The point of the problem-solving devices is that you don't sin, you handle it with the problem-solving devices, and you stay in fellowship. So you don't need to bounce back and forth in and out by always having to confess your sins. And But you stay in fellowship, and that's the place where where spiritual growth takes place. Now, let's take that background, and let's apply that to what John is saying. We have to go back to the main theme. Chapter 2, verse 28, John says, Now little children abide in him. That's what he's talking about. From 2.28 to 4.19, he's going to say, he's telling us what abiding looks like in the believer. What abiding in Christ is going to be characterized by. And notice he says in verse 29 of chapter 2, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who, and it's not practices righteousness, one of the problems that you run into all through this section is a translation problem because what happens is you get people operating on a legalistic framework and translating the scriptures. In this section, you will find this word several times, practices. That word is not found in the Greek. Sometimes you will also find the word uh, continuous. That word is derived from the fact that there are present tense verbs, and as many of you have learned over the years, a present tense verb at times indicates continuous action. But the idea of continuous, there are specific verbs that mean continuous, and John could have availed himself of that if he meant to emphasize continuous action in this passage. In fact, if uh, what 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 interesting is for a period of years reading this passage was quite difficult for some people to understand so the the solution was thought to reside in in taking the verbs in this continuous sense and introducing that idea into the translation and so a lot of translations that came out between in the back in the 50s 60s and 70s have that continuous word in there trouble is that a lot of Pretty decent Greek scholars started doing some research, and uh, starting in the late 70s, there have been about eight or ten excellent articles published demonstrating that that is a completely uh, fraudulent way to go in this passage, and it creates more problems for, for understanding First John than it solves. So that is is a problem. Now, this word practices in the Greek is the verb. Poieo, P-O-I-E-O. And poieo means to do, or in some cases, to make. But there's no reason to introduce this very uh, rare idea of practice into understanding this particular word. It means to do something. 
to do righteousness or to do sin. But it doesn't mean to practice. See, practice has that idea of continuous action. The word for practice in the scripture is proso. And you find proso used in some key passages. We've seen it like in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in Galatians chapter 5 where it gives a list of sins and says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's clear, we've studied those, that that's not inheriting the kingdom doesn't mean getting saved, but it has to do with rewards during the eternal state. But we don't have the word proso here at all. We have the word poieo. And so what John is saying in 1 John 2:28, little children abide in him. And then in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, uh, you know that everyone who does righteousness is born in him, born of him. Now it's not saying everyone who is born of him always does righteousness. That's how a lot of people want to read that verse. But it is saying that only True righteousness can be produced by someone who is truly regenerate. An unregenerate person can be moral, but they can't produce true righteousness. True righteousness can only come from a nature that has been regenerate, and regeneration comes from putting your faith alone in Christ alone. Okay, let's go on and read through the passage again and pick up. I want to emphasize some things. Each time I go through this, I pick up a few things myself. John says, Behold, behold what manner of love actually should be concentrate on the great love, the incredible love that God the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called, that is, named as children of God. As a believer, we're adopted into the family of God. Therefore, the world does not know us, that is, the cosmic system out there doesn't know us because it did not know him. There is a radical break that takes place. And he goes on to explain, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. After you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you are a child of God. Now the word technon here that he or technia that he is using for children of God is the word for a young child who is under discipline. Uh, Galatians talks about this. Paul talks about it in Galatians where he talks about the the child that's under the pedagogue, the the tutor, the trainer. And a child is someone who is under the discipline and control and authority of their parents who are teaching them and training them to be an adult. What a concept. See, the role of being a parent is not just to uh, provide your kids with a great childhood. The role of a parent is designed so that uh, your job is to teach and train them so that they can be mature, uh, happy, healthy, uh, successful adults, so that they can learn to face life on the basis of doctrine apply the word of God in their lives and so that they can learn discipline and authority orientation. So that's part of what it, what John is indicating here. It, you could almost go to the extreme of saying that it means students. That's not really the idea, but it's that we are under training. God is training us to be mature. And that's a major theme in this whole epistle is that the believer needs to be advancing to spiritual maturity. We are children of God, and it hasn't yet been revealed what we shall be. Focus on the future. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. See, this is an under, relates back to what I said earlier in terms of our personal sense of our eternal destiny. We recognize there is a future, that after we die, it doesn't end. After we die, we're face-to-face with the Lord, but there's eventual accountability at the judgment seat of Christ. First John 2.28 warns us that if we don't abide in him, there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Notice it didn't say we won't be at the judgment seat of Christ. It says there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So if you don't abide, it doesn't mean you weren't saved. It means that you're going to have shame at the judgment seat of Christ because you're a failure in your spiritual life and a failure as a believer. Then in verse 5, John says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. That is, and we talked about the impeccability of Jesus Christ, that he is sinless. That, 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 that's the basis for qualifying him to go to the cross. He was without sin. And he says, in him there is no sin, because Christ is sinless. In him, being in right relationship with him, there is no sin. So that being in him, that is abiding in Christ, there is no sin. Now, is John saying that the believer is sinless? Of course not. 
because John has already made the point back in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, that believers sin. If we say we do not sin, then we deceive ourselves, John says. If we say we don't sin, then we make him a liar, he says in 1 John 1, chapter 10. So the point is that that in Christ, in him, only abiding in him, not positional, but abiding in him, we're sinless. That's the same thing Paul said. This was the whole point last week. Galatians 5.16, when Paul says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you cannot bring to completion the deeds of the flesh. Well, John, What Paul is saying, Galatians 5.16, is when you're walking by the Spirit, you can't sin. What John is saying here is when you're abiding in Christ, you can't sin. It is a sinless position. You can make a decision not to abide or not to walk. And that's why the the issue here becomes volition. Your decision, are you going to stay inside the, the circle here? Are you going to trust Christ? Are you going to continue to apply these spiritual skills? Or are you going to somehow try to solve life's problems on your own? So at the end of verse 5, John says, In him there is no sin. And and as I pointed out again and again, when John uses this term in him, he almost always turns around and puts the word abide in the next phrase, because in him always implies abiding in him, which is what he does at the beginning of verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, that's not the experience of every believer. I mean, the experience of every believer is that we sin at some point. So abiding in him can't mean being saved. Abiding in him must mean having that intimate relationship, that walk with him. And when we're walking with him and we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, we don't sin. It's impossible to sin. And he goes on to say, whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And last time I emphasized the fact that, that this is a pretty decent translation in the English as a, a, a past participle in English, and that does not mean has never seen him or known him. That can't be, you can't get that from the grammar. What, what, the, the, in fact, you have two perfect tense verbs here in the Greek, and they imply the present result of a past action. So you could translate it as, as as one commentator did, whoever sins is in a not seeing and not knowing position. See, what happens is when we sin, let's back out of this diagram, when we sin and we uh, we choose to sin and we're not walking by in the light anymore, where are we? We're walking in darkness. Walking in darkness is a state where we're spiritually blind and spiritually stupid. Uh, we're, 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 we're ignorant. We're not operating on the truth of God's word anymore. We're operating in a, in a spiritually restricted area. We're walking in darkness. So John says, whoever sins, when you sin, you're outside the circle. You're in darkness. You're in a not seeing, not knowing position. And then he says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Well, the problem with that, again, is what's the, what's the word that shouldn't be there? Practices. It's he is uh, the one who uh, does righteousness is righteous. What that is saying is that when you are inside the circle, when we're filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, that is where righteousness is produced because that's the arena of production by God the Holy Spirit. That's what Galatians 5, 16 through 25 is all about. Walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to produce certain character qualities, real virtue, not morality. See, the biggest problem in Christianity is that people confuse morality with spirituality. Morality is not spirituality. Just because somebody is extremely religious and moral doesn't mean they have a relationship with God. Well, we could we could talk about the Pharisees during Jesus time that they were extremely moral. Yet Jesus said unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees you cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words it's not enough to be 
moral. It's not enough to have human virtue. It has to be something more. And only the believer, walking by the Holy Spirit, can produce true righteousness. And that's because it's not produced by us. It's produced by God, the Holy Spirit, who is working in us. So in verse 7, John says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous. In other words, he's looking at a person's life. He says, if you can see real righteousness there, that they're doing real righteousness, then that means that, that back in verse 29 of the last chapter, that means they're born again. And, and that means that, that there is, they're, they're walking by God, the Holy Spirit. And they are doing righteous just as he is righteous. And how did Jesus produce righteousness? By walking by means of God, the Holy Spirit. That's why he pioneered the spiritual life for the church age. He did not, uh, uh, as Hebrews states, that we do not have a high priest who has uh, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tested in all points as we are. He went through all the testing we went through, but he didn't surmount the temptation by relying on his deity. He surmounted the temptation by relying upon God, the Holy Spirit, and the same spiritual skills that he bequeathed to us. Everything except, of course, occupation with Christ and and confession of sin, because he didn't need to use those two. It was God, the Holy Spirit, that gave him the ability. That's what Galatians chapter 5 is talking about. So in 1 John 3, 7, John is saying the one who does righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. It's not just morality. It is spiritual virtue that is produced by God the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he says, he who sins is of the devil. Oh, now this is where we get into some fun stuff here because you see what happens is you get so many people who think that the person who sins, well, as soon as they think about sin, they think about their their, their favorite horrible sins. Let me skip through this. Okay, their favorite horrible sins. Now, now just think about it a minute. What are your favorite horrible sins? Everybody's got some favorite horrible sins, and that's what they think of here, that obviously if, if, if you commit these acts, you must be of the devil. And, of course, they translate, they immediately think that that phrase, of the devil, means not saved. But see, when you're walking in darkness, when you are walking in darkness, walking on the power of the sin nature, you are also walking in the world system. Now, remember what John said back in John chapter 2. He said, um, do not love the world, that is the cosmic system, or the things in the cosmic system. If anyone loves the cosmic system, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, he's not saying they're not saved. He's saying that at that point, they do not understand their relationship with God. It's not motivating them, and they're living according to the devil's thinking. So when, when John says in chapter 3, that he who sins is of the devil, what he is saying is the one who sins is doing what the devil wants him to do. He is operating on the cosmic system. Now, the cosmic system has has different manifestations. See, when a lot of people think of the world system, what we want to think of is something that is morally reprehensible, uh, something that is immoral, some overt sin like 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 pedophilia or like uh, uh, homosexuality or perversion or, or thinking that you're so gender confused you have to have a sex change operation. And we tend to think this is just so extreme. How can somebody like that be saved? Except you don't find any of those sins listed in the horrible list of sins that you find in Scripture. When Proverbs says that there are six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. You don't find uh, cross-dressing, pederasty, pedophilia, uh, necro- uh, necrophilia, or any of these horrible things listed there. What you find is sins like arrogance and pride and a haughty look. Um, we have to understand that sin is sin. And there, there are moral sins and there are immoral sins. What, what, is, what is more immoral? What is, what is more evil? Think about this. What is more evil? The person who engages in homosexual sodomite perversion or the person who teaches that anything you believe will get you to heaven. All roads lead to God. You don't need to believe in that Jesus-only stuff. All you have to do is to be good. All you have to do is be involved in, in our church, in our denomination, and engage in, in our ritual and our practices, and you'll get to heaven. Well, that's not true according to the Bible. You won't get to heaven. In fact, you'll end up in, in eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. So what is more evil, the person who practices some sexual perversion or the person who is out there teaching something that leads millions of, people's right to the, millions of people right to the lake of fire? Which is more evil? 
Which is more evil, some politician who promotes socialism, which promotes individual irresponsibility, or are or, 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 or people who believe in, in political systems and economic theory that emphasize personal responsibility as the Bible emphasizes personal responsibility? What's more evil? You see, we want to think of evil in terms of these extreme sins, except that's not what the Bible presents. We have a sin nature. That sin nature is dominated by a lust pattern. That is its motivation. Uh, we produce human good. See, people don't think of good deeds as being wrong. But good deeds, you can be involved in prayer that's wrong. You can be involved in ritual that's wrong. You can be involved in going to church. And if they, if they don't teach the truth of the Bible, then it's, then it's wrong. It, it's human good. It may be a good thing, but it proceeds from the sin nature. Then we have our area of weakness that produces personal sins. But we have trends. See, we trend towards asceticism and legalism. Asceticism and legalism is morality. That's the morality of the Pharisees. And yet Jesus Christ condemned the morality of the Pharisees, which is more extreme than any morality that we're used to. He condemned that morality as evil. He said, you're a brood of vipers. I mean, he condemned them as some of the most evil people in human history. Yet when we think of evil, we want to think of somebody like a Saddam Hussein or Adolf Hitler or, or, or Joe Stalin or somebody like that, somebody who's killed millions and millions of people or been guilty of genocide or, or racism or something like that. Yet the Bible says that somebody who promotes morality as a way to a relationship with God is worse. And so we come along and we see somebody who's going to, be a cross-dresser, a sexual pervert, or someone would say, well, how can they ever be saved? And we're going to a church where the pastor is as arrogant as the day is long, and we don't even think twice about it. Or we're, uh, uh, we, we know other people who are self-righteous in their morality, and we don't think twice about it. And yet, somebody who is involved in self-righteous morality is much worse than somebody who's involved in, in overt immorality. In fact, I'd rather deal with a church of people who are involved in overt immorality, and I don't get any ideas, <laughs> than people who are involved in, in self-righteous morality, because most people, and, and I haven't had a lot of dealings with uh, uh, dealing with homosexuals or sodomites, but I've had some, and you know what? One of the things I've noticed is they all, deep down, seem to know that whatever it is they're doing, it's wrong. And they seem to, to, to be a little more responsive to, to the grace of the gospel. Because somewhere deep down, they know that they, 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 they've just committed some sort of evil. But you get a bunch of people who are self-righteous uh, religious activists, and they don't want to listen to grace at all. They're too busy condemning everybody else, and uh, they're no fun to be with either. So, um, you know, we have to watch out for our concept of sin. Sin is much more complex and much more multifaceted than most people are willing to give it. They want to restrict it to some sort of overt perversions, overt sin, overt activity, as opposed to all these horrible mental attitude sins of judging. In fact, you know, it's interesting that the people who are sitting back there judging the sexual pervert for he can't possibly be sin, they're, they're judging out of arrogance and self-righteousness, and they're, uh, and they're that way the whole time, but somehow that's an acceptable sin, whereas the sexual perversion is not an acceptable sin. So, obviously... Uh, that person can't go to heaven. So we have to understand that distinction. And what John says here is, he who sins, he who sins is of the devil. Now, I think the New American Standard even inserts the word practices there. And remember, practices is not there. Literally, in the Greek, it is a, a present active participle with an article. That means it's used as a substantive. And the way John uses this kind of a participle, it just basically functions like a noun. He's just naming a person, the one who sins. It can almost be translated like that. So to push it to the point of saying the one who who does sin, or the one who continuously does sin, or the one who practices sin, is not there in the text. It is simply the one, the one who sins, and the one who sins, or the one who does sin, and sin is in the singular, by the way. The one who does sin is of the devil. 
and is operating in the devil system and the devil's uh, the devil's world. So the one who sins is really a disciple of the devil as opposed to acting like a child of God. And he goes on to say, because, not for, but it's a causal use of hati, because the devil has sinned from the beginning. So the devil is the father of sin. That's what Jesus said in First John, I mean in John chapter 8. The Son of God appeared or is manifested. This is like the fifth time we've had Fanarao here for appearing or manifested or revealed. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. See, that's the point in the believer's life is we're not supposed to sin. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to get to a point of sinless perfection, but the believer is not supposed to sin. That's what Paul's saying in, in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that you have been freed from sin, that, that you are no longer a slave of sin, so live like a slave to righteousness and not like a slave to sin? So he, John says here, he who sins is of the of the devil, that is, he's acting like he's from the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. As This is part of our spiritual advance and spiritual growth, is to learn by applying doctrine how to be free from sin and to control sin in our, on the sin nature in our life. And then we get to verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed abides in him. Now, I, it's getting late. We had communion. I'm going to go ahead because I, I, after build, building this up, we, we can't stop here. We have to get all this background together to finish nine. Whoever has been born of God is, again, a reference to the, to the believer. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. Now, what does that mean? I mean, John just got through saying back in, in 1 John chapter 1 that believers do sin, and if you don't admit you're a sinner, then you're either in self-deception or you're calling God a liar. So how can, is he reversing himself? Obviously not. And he doesn't mean continuously sin. We can't put that in here. What he is talking about here is that the believer in fellowship, walking in that circle, doesn't sin. And he says, for his seed abides in him. See, to understand the first clause, we have to understand the second. For his seed abides in him. Now, what does this mean? Well, what is the seed? Some have suggested it's the Holy Spirit. Some have suggested it is simply faith. But we have to look at how the term seed is used in several passages. For example, in Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God. In 1 Peter 1.23 we read, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. So the seed is the word of God that is the gospel that brings forth new life in the believer. For his seed abides in him. And we have seen that abiding is not a term of absolute, but a relative term. And so the point that he is making is that as long as the word is abiding in us, we don't sin. Now, now how can I say that? Well, look back, if you can, if not, just listen to me, John chapter 15. John 15, 4, Jesus said, Abide in me and I in you. See, the living word has a double entendre there. It's abiding in the word. Jesus is the word of God. And the written word is He's the living word. This is the written word. So by hearing the gospel, we're become the, the seed that's planted in us is the message about the living word of God, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. So, therefore, we have this Double, double activity here that when we are abiding in Christ, He is abiding in us. When we're not abiding in Christ, He's not abiding in us. John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in Him. It's a dual factor. When we abide in Him, He abides in us. So when John says in 1 John 1, I mean in 1 John 3, 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed abides in him, he's talking about this mutuality of the fact that we're abiding in him and his seed, the word, and Jesus Christ abides in us, then we are, we don't sin. This is exactly what Jesus says in John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
Ask whatever you wish, it shall be done for you. So when we're abiding in him, there is also the uh, uh, return activity, the reciprocal activity of Jesus and the word abiding in us. And so when that is taking place, we don't sin. That's what he goes on to say. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, there's another way of looking at this, too. And some of you parents will understand this. And some of you who were children, which is just about everybody, probably heard this at one point or another. When you were growing up, you disobeyed your parents. And you did some horrible thing that just embarrassed them to no end. It probably wasn't that bad, but they were embarrassed. And they looked at you and they said, no child of mine does that. No member of this family does that. Well, did you do it? Yes. Are you still a member of that family? Yes. Well, you see, what they were saying is that this is not how you're supposed to behave as a true child in this family. It's not acceptable behavior. That's what John is saying here, is that, yes, it's true that you still have a sin nature and you're going to sin. Yes, it's true that you're going to commit horrible and heinous sins and shock everybody, including yourself. But the point is, you're not supposed to, and if you're a child of God, that's not supposed to character, characterize your life. And sin is not supposed to be part of the believer's life. It is, but we have a solution, and that's 1 John 1, nine. But it's not supposed to be. It's not acceptable behavior for the child of God. That is what 1 John 3, 9 is talking about. So in this section from 1 John 3, 1 through 1 John 3, 9, John is emphasizing the fact that the believer is supposed to be, he's saved for a purpose, and that is to perform righteous deeds and righteous works. They're not produced of his own energy and of his own own nature. They're produced by his walk by the Holy Spirit. We only have that when we're abiding in Christ. We have recovery through 1 John 1, 9, so that when we sin, and we will, we can recover. But the point is, we're not supposed to just bounce in and out of fellowship. We're to stay. We're to remain. We are to abide in Christ. This is what is to characterize the life of the believer. And furthermore, where he's going with this is to emphasize the fact that this is related to fulfilling the commandment that Jesus gave in John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Now, I remind you where we started last Sunday morning. Jesus gives the command to love one another in John 13. In John 14, he says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. In John 15, he said, you have to abide in me. See, we have to abide in him and walk by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the commandment. John's saying the same thing in in this epistle, is that we have to abide in Christ. Paul says we have to walk by the Holy Spirit. We have to do that if we're going to fulfill the commandment. Now, being able to fulfill the commandment doesn't come when you're three days old as a believer, spiritual infant or spiritual, spiritual child. It is developed only as the seed of the Word of God produces maturity in your life over a period of time. But that's the goal. See, the purpose, the purpose in the Christian life is the same as you parents out there. Your job is to teach your children to function as mature adults. The spiritual life's goal is to get us to maturity, not just to live as spiritual infants. And we have to learn what it looks like to live as a spiritually mature adult, and that's what John is telling us in this epistle. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that your word is is uh, really clear to us. When we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that there is such a harmony there. That doesn't mean it's always easy for us to understand, but we know that when we study it under the teaching of God the Holy Spirit, we can understand these things and see how they apply in our own lives. Father, above all, we thank you for your grace. The grace is your policy for dealing with us in every area of life. That excludes human morality and excludes self-righteousness. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. It's not a matter of personal works. It's not a matter of your own righteousness, good deeds, ritual, church attendance, church observance, any other human factor. It is a matter of your own trust in Christ. What are you trusting in for your eternal life? Scripture says, The gospel is simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we have studied this morning.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.